Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. O gracious and most merciful Father, we pray that you would be our teacher this evening by your Spirit, that we would know your Word. We would know not merely the law, but the author. Lord, the sweet Lord Jesus. Lord, that we would be able to keep your word until the end. Hold fast to it through difficult times. Give us all understanding that we might be able to keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead us, Lord, in the path of your commandments that we might be able to delight in them. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not towards selfish gain. Fill us with your Spirit, Lord, for we need your help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, been born in the likeness of men, been found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. There's quite a simple question that I think we often would maybe be asked or try to be able to explain, what is the gospel? The gospel, you might summarize in in a few words, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and Christ is that Savior. Try and understand the wholeness, the fullness of the gospel. The gospel is not merely one aspect of our life, but a whole plethora of things lived out in various means. We're not only sinners, in need of a Savior, and Christ is that Savior. But after that, what happens? Not merely that Christ died for our sins, and that is the end of the story. Christ wasn't merely buried in the ground, but three days later, he rose again from the dead. Christ merely did not uh, was risen from the dead, but he ascended up into heaven. He is seated there at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And often when we think about the gospel, we often merely just think about it as Christ's death. Christ died for me. Well, that is true. But it's not the whole gospel. And here Paul emphasizes not merely that Christ's humiliation. That here in verse 9, it begins with therefore. It's because of Christ's humiliation. Not merely he was 
He was above coming down to earth, but he emptied himself not by subtracting his divine nature, but by adding human nature hypostatically united to the Son of God with the nature of a Son of Man, fully God, fully man, very God of very God. That here he takes the form of a servant in the likeness of men, humbling himself to the point of death, not merely just any form of death, but death on a cross. Humiliation, like a criminal filled with shame. It's because of this, Paul then says, therefore, the gospel is more than Christ's humiliation. There's more to the gospel than Christ's death on the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul blatantly states that if Christ did not was not risen from the dead, then we are foolish. That we are fools filled with folly. But he goes on to explain that Christ's resurrection is the believer's resurrection. Because of their union with Christ in his death is their union with Christ in his resurrection. But here in this time, Paul does not mention and go from Christ's humiliation to his resurrection. But he goes from Christ's humiliation to his exaltation. And Paul wants to emphasize to the Philippian church not merely to have the mind of Christ's humility, but also of Christ's exaltation. So what do we mean when we say the exaltation of Christ? Westminster Larger Catechism in question 51 answers this question, what's the estate of Christ's exaltation? It says the estate of Christ's exaltation comprehendeth his resurrection, his ascension, his sitting at the right hand of the Father, and his coming back again to judge the world. There's four things there that the catechism explains. What is Christ's exaltation? His resurrection coming out of the grave, his ascension going up, into heaven, his intercession, his, his um, uh, sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and then also his coming down again to judge the world. And in Philippians, Paul doesn't go over those four portions, but one aspect of that question, the Westminster Larder Catechism, the sitting at the right hand of the Father, Christ's rule and his reign, more particularly his coronation, his power. Paul states in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him. God the Father exalts him, bestows on him three things in this passage. Christ was exalted by the Father by bestowing the name above every name. Secondly, Christ was exalted by the Father that every knee should bow. And thirdly, that Christ was exalted by the Father that every tongue confess. Or to put it another way, the Father bestowed on Christ a name, reign, and a claim. Firstly, that Christ was exalted by the Father by bestowing the name above every name. See that clearly in in verse 9, 
the name that is above every name. What does this mean? Does Christ get a new name? He's called Jesus on earth. What do we call him in heaven? I think that all of these three things are closely united. That here you see every knee bow, every name above every name, that every tongue confess. What do they do? They're all connected together. Under one banner of the Father's exaltation of Christ. Isaiah 45 is a great passage to be able to look at when we're considering this verse. And as we turn there, we need to remind ourselves that here Christ emptied himself in his humiliation. It's not that he is less divine, that he subtracted from his divine nature when he came to earth. And then when he died and was ascended to heaven, he then earned this divine nature back. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, the human nature. And that was the humility. So when we speak of exaltation, God does not then exalt God the Son in His divine nature. Because there was nothing taken away from His divine nature. That would be that the Godhead had fullness of divine nature, Christ's humility came, there was a lack in God during His divine nature, then He earned it back during this portion. that the Godhead would have lost glory in the period of the Incarnation. What we're speaking about is His human nature. When the second person in the Trinity was divinely united, hypostatically united to the God nature, without conversion, composition, or confusion, the man then as it's united to Christ, is exalted. As the author of Hebrews spells out, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God that he may taste death for everyone. So here we're speaking of that humble human nature in which was hypostatically united. So what is this name that is bestowed upon Christ? James Montgomery Voice explains that Jesus Christ has a lot of names. He's called Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, the Almighty, Ancient of Days, the Door, the Chief Shepherd, the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, the Word, the Light, the Lamb, the Bread of Life, the Rock, the Bridegroom, the Alpha and the Omega. So what is the name that is bestowed upon the God-man Jesus Christ? We see here Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 45. And in Isaiah chapter 45, Specifically, verses 22 and 23, Isaiah writes, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. 
And in this section of Isaiah, the Lord challenges the pagan idols to do something or say something to back up their claims to be gods. As we looked at this morning in our morning service, that here these false gods claim that they are strong and powerful. And God Almighty turns to them in Isaiah chapter 45 and he challenges them. Well, show me, prove it. But God confidently announces that he alone stands at the beginning and end of history. That he alone can announce the future and bring it about. That he is Yahweh, the Lord, the only living God. There is no other. Therefore, he alone is worthy to receive universal worship with every knee that is bowed. And universal confession that there is absolute allegiance. And the name Jesus Christ is given is Lord Yahweh. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Again, in Hebrews chapter 1, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Or in Acts chapter 2, let the house of Israel therefore know that certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. But it's not merely that this change of name is merely just a a, a change in, in some form of informal way. It carries meaning and purpose. In Christ's exaltation comes his exaltation of sitting in all authority on his throne. As he sends out the disciples, Christ says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Or in 1 Peter 3, verse 22, Who has gone into heaven at his right hand with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subject to him. And here he sits enthroned with a kingly name, a kingly posture. It's common practice even in today in other countries where there's kings. For example, when the queen who has recently passed away, his name was Albert. He was known by his friends as Bertie. But when he became king, he chose his kingly name. George. He takes on the title then of George the Sixth. And so Christ now bears the name above every other name. This becomes their power, their authority to be able to their title upon their seal. And Christ was crowned king with all authority. In Psalm 110, verse 1, as the Lord says to my Lord, as David writes, sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ sits enthroned, empowered by God with all authority. Everything underneath his dominion has been given to him. The name above all names. This is why we pray and we end our prayers in Jesus' name, amen. It is not merely that we got together as Christians and said, how do we know when prayers are finished? If we're all to say amen together, then we need something that we can say before that so we know this is when we're to say amen together. No, it's, it's we are praying in Christ's name. This is who we sign the prayers off as. It's because of Christ's exaltation. He's been given all power and authority by His Father Almighty. That is Christ interceding for us as Paul finishes Romans chapter 8. That who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, more was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. Again, Paul points out that it's not merely Christ's death, His burial, it's not merely His resurrection, but it's His ascension. And that gives us purpose. That Christ was exalted by the Father, bestowing upon Him the name above every name. But secondly, Christ was exalted by the Father that every knee should bow. It's not only Christ is exalted with a new name, but every knee was then to bow to Him. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That here, Christ's reign is everywhere. The Revelation chapter 5 begins and explains about this scroll that is not able to be opened. And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look on it. No one was worthy. Not merely just in a portion, but all of heaven, all of earth, even under the earth. Towards the end of the chapter in verse 15, John the Apostle writes that I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Again, John spells out that it is all creatures, all creation. Heaven, earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them, that every knee would bow. And we often think of every knee as every human knee, but here all of creation is underneath Christ's dominion as He is exalted by the Father. Do you think back of His humiliation? And when the soldiers gathered around him, they struck him with the head with the reed, spitting on him. And they knelt down and bade homage to him, mocking him. If you truly are the King of kings, if you truly are the Son of God, save yourself. And those same knees that mocked Christ will bow down to Christ.
and they will confess with the tongue in which they spat upon the Lord that he is Jesus Christ, the Lord. The truth is, every knee will bow. A radical change. Many people across this world and throughout history have never, not once, thought of even bowing down before Christ. They have lived their life opposed to him, rejecting his rule and reign, his word, walking opposed to all that he has spoken. Yet one day, they will. While others, they might bow down, but it's not out of full reverence. Merely just a head nod. But yet there will be a day where their knees would be like magnets and they fall to the ground. Bowing and worshiping Christ as the exalted King over all. Christ the Lord. Now to us, this is great comfort. On one level, us as weary Christians who long to be able to bow in all of our, giving up all of our fullness. Some of us to bow is a difficulty because of our age, but more importantly, all of us it's a difficulty because of our hearts. We are prone to wander prone to leave the God we love, prone to bow down and worship other things that God has given, uh, blessed us with. But there's also comfort for us as we look at many other things that people bow down and worship, even ourselves. Many people will bow down to identity, to politics, to family, to work, to careers, to finance. But we pray that we might bow today, not merely with a head bow, not opposed to Christ, but humbly upon all reliance upon Him, that He is our Lord and our King. Christ was exalted by the Father by bestowing the name above every name. Christ was exalted by the Father that every knee should bow, and finally, that Christ was exalted by the Father that every tongue confess. In verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's not then that every knee will fall to the ground, but also every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There's three names here that are given to Christ that everyone will confess, that will go upon their lips. The first is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. The glorious truth of the promise of the Bible that God comes down as the God-man to be able to die for our sins. That He has saved us. We have not saved ourselves, but He has saved us through His death, resurrection, His perfect life of obedience. second name is Christ. It's not merely a last name, but a coherent title that speaks of all of the promise of God, of the Messiah to come, 
throughout all of Scripture. The promises of God fulfilled. Right back from the garden when Adam and Eve fell and there was one to come who was going to defeat the serpent. The serpent had won that round against Adam and Eve. There was one day, a day to come, when the promised Messiah would defeat that serpent. But not only Jesus and Christ, but He is Lord. The one who keeps His promises. The one, the covenantal name that I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. The everlasting God. And every tongue will confess that statement. Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no division. Well, you go over in this side, you don't like that part. Well, that's fine. You struggle with the that he's the promised Messiah, that's fine, you go over here. Every tongue Again, in Isaiah chapter 45, that verse in 23, that I myself have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Again, the image here is of a king and his coronation that all who are subjects of his realm confirm that he is their king. And on that day, every single thing that is subject to Christ, everything on heaven, everything on earth, everything under the earth, everything in the sea shall confess that he is Lord. It's an amazing image, again, when we think of all those in this world who stand opposed to Christ, never seeking to bow, never using to use their tongues to be able to worship Christ. Instead, they mock and ridicule Christ and His creation. It's not merely that Christ's reign silences them, but they turn in confession and loyalty and an oath saying that Christ is King, Christ is Lord. This is the the gospel message, right? To those who have confessed before they have died through faith, it's a glorious statement. Christ is my Lord. Christ is my Savior. Christ is my Redeemer. But to those who have lived opposed to Him, they are subject to His judgment and wrath. Christ is my Lord. He rules and reigns and he will judge justly. As Paul states in Romans chapter 10, this is the truth that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in that message, Jesus Christ is Lord is the hope of salvation. Our hope of his resurrection and ours. 
There is a fountain filled with blood finishes with the final stanza explaining that when this poor and lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I sing thy power to save. Here Paul speaks of of Christ's exaltation bestowed upon him by God the Father. That he has a name above every name. That every knee would bow, every tongue confess. It's hard to be able to put these words into to action, I mean, Daniel in chapter 10 does a fantastic job, but yet it seems so pale in comparison to what we truly will bestow and see. So what? What does this mean? How do you live this principle out? And Paul, as he's addressing the church in Philippi, he's, he's not merely just saying, you need to be humble. But he points out, to, points to Christ. And he explains this section beginning in verse 5, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That here, division had crept into the church. It begins in chapter 4, my brothers whom I love, whom I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Unica and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And it's not merely that they are to be humbled by Christ's humiliation. But in this, Christ's exaltation shows not only Christ's victory over sin, but He is Lord over all, even our lives. Not only are we walk humbly, but we are to praise exultingly. But here we understand that humility, walked out, lived out, is not merely just we humble ourselves, but we humble ourselves by exalting Christ. Paul uses this exact same verse in Romans chapter 14. Speaking of the weaker and the stronger brothers in Christ, He says in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself, to God. You relive in this life not in mere humility, but also understanding that Christ is Lord. Christ has purchased those who are His. That we live in this life in humility, knowing that our citizenship is not here. As Paul will explain in chapter 3, that our citizenship is in heaven. That we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here, Paul spells out humility of Christ, exaltation of Christ, leads to our humility, leads to our exaltation in Christ. That we are in our lowly body now, but one day we will be in his glorious body when we go to be with him where our citizenship lies. where Paul in Colossians spells this principle out, if we have been raised with Christ, what then do we do? We seek things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand. The word is set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Do you live and walk humbly today, knowing that we will exalt Christ tomorrow? Do we live humbly today, showing our Christ's humility as he has shown to us, worshiping Christ as Lord over all? Do we think and know and ponder of our citizenship in heaven? Or do we get hung up on this world in which we live, in which we are merely strangers, foreigners, with a traveling visa going through. Let us live and walk, having the mind of Christ in His humiliation and in His exaltation. Let us praise His great and glorious name. Let us bend our knees towards Him and let us exalt His name. Christ is Lord. Let us do that today. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Let us pray. A gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that here we see the glorious hope and truth of where Christ is this very day, in whose name we pray. Lord, we pray that we would see this glorious truth lived out in our lives. Lord, that we would humble ourselves as you walked humbly on this earth. Lord, that we would seek to be able to be subject to you. Lord, let our knees bow, let our tongues confess that you are indeed Lord over all. Help us to live humbly as we walk alongside one another. Help us all to be able to worship and adore you, submitting to you in all things, in all circumstances. Help us to set our minds not on this earthly place in which we wander and walk, but upon heaven, where we will finally find our rest in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.